We continue our study in 2 Corinthians. Uh, We'll look at a couple verses tonight as we work our way through. Uh, Last week, we, excuse me, a couple weeks ago now, we entitled our time together, The God of All Comfort, uh, dealing with the fact that God comforts us in the midst of trials and tribulations, and praise the Lord for that. Tonight, the title of our time together, I've called like to call it this, the comfort of a clean conscience. Not only do we have the comfort that God gives, but there's the issue of the comfort that a clean conscience brings in our lives. Such an important thing that we deal with on a really a day-to-day basis. Look with me, begin reading in verse number 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience That in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what we read, what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part... That we, by your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul mentions, if you'll look at your Bibles and note out of verse number 12, he mentions this statement out of verse number 12. The rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. The testimony of our conscience. Now, the word conscience is found... 31 times in our New Testament King James Version Bibles. It's found 31 times. The Bible, the New Testament, has much to say about the conscience and we'll not be able to deal with it all tonight. I wish we could, but we'll not have time to do that. What exactly is the conscience? Well, you might come up with many definitions with regards to the conscience, but Thayer's Dictionary says the conscience is this. The soul distinguishing... It's the soul distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one and condemning the other. The conscience is that which points us to or helps us understand right and wrong, condemns the one, points us away from the other, and says, this is right. This is the direction to go. Webster, I like his definition of what a conscience is. He, said, he calls it the court of a conscience. Like being in a courtroom. The court of conscience. He says it's the internal or self-knowledge or judgment of right and wrong. Or the facility and principle within us which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our own actions or affections, and instantly approves or condemns them. Instantaneously approves or condemns our actions. One writer said, Our conscience takes the witness stand against me if I do wrong, but it also takes the witness stand for me when I do right. And I like that. That's pretty simplified for me. 
You ever had your conscience take a witness stand against you in your mind and in your heart? Surely we all have. The human conscience is the soul's warning system. The soul's warning system. Uh, Every Wednesday, it happened today, every first Wednesday of the month, you may or may not notice it, Brother Bragg and those who live around here would, there's a long tower right here on the edge of what used to be Camp Joy right here, and there's a big horn on the top of that thing. The Josephsons know all about it. And every Wednesday, the first Wednesday of every month, at 12 o'clock sharp, there's a, a horn that goes off. It's a whistle, and it's more than a whistle. It's a blast, and it can be heard all around. It's something, and it goes off for, I don't know, maybe 90 seconds or roughly around that part. And, and so it is a warning system that is saying that if there's a nuclear problem, you got to get out of town. Now, the only problem with me hearing that is when I'm sitting here and I hear it on the first Wednesday of every month is, is this a test or not? Uh, Is this the real thing? And how do you know it's the real thing or not? I guess if it doesn't stop, then you finally wake up and get out of town. Um, The warning system, we're all familiar with, we've heard the radio and We've heard that long sound come over the radio system. And it would say after the end of it, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. The broadcasters of your area in voluntary cooperation with the FCC and other authorities have developed this system to keep you, keep you informed in the event of an emergency. We've all heard that kind of thing. A warning system. It could be said that... God the Father, in voluntary cooperation with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, have developed a system of human conscience to keep you informed in the event of any emergency that might lead us into sin. The conscience. The warning system in case there's emergency that might lead us into an area of sin. The conscience is that God-given mechanism that identifies and communicates right and wrong in our lives. It's a God-given mechanism. And God put that conscience in every man. In every man. Lost man, he has a conscience. And I will talk about that. And I believe that conscience is used to... uh, eventually used by the Holy Spirit to bring that man to saving faith, or at least the understanding of his need for Christ. But the conscience, that God-given warning system within the heart of every man that communicates to us, I believe it's part of that inner man, the inner man that God has built within each and every one of us. If I contemplate telling a lie, or if I do lie, my conscience immediately tells me that I've lied. If I contemplate telling a lie, if I contemplate uh, taking something or doing something wrong or fudging a little here or fudging a little there, uh, there's that conscience that immediately shows up and says, now wait a minute. You better think this thing through. 
Um, and it points me away from that. It alerts me. It's that warning system. The conscience will alert me that I should not go there. In fact, it will warn me to flee from such things. The conscience, as I mentioned, is given by God to all men so that all men might be able to become aware of and evaluate the wrong or the right deeds that are in their lives. Wrong and right deeds. The conscience is given to help all men. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, look with me at the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Here Paul is dealing, talking about the Jew, and they've been given the Ten Commandments. The, Jew, the Ten Commandments are for the Jew, by the way. They've been given, they were given for the Old Testament to the Jew. But what about the Gentiles? How in the world are they going to know what's right and what's wrong? Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So there's this conscience, this God-given conscience that points to man and says this is wrong or this is right. It's that warning system that's that by either accusing or excusing, our conscience will either affirm or condemn our actions. There is a natural law, a natural law of right and wrong. I don't care what the educational system says today. There's a natural law of right and wrong that God writes upon the heart of every man. The Gentiles who had not been given the law by God on tables of stone, they had not seen or read the commandments given to Moses, but they nevertheless had the moral commandments Written in their DNA, the DNA of the conscience. It's there. A man knows, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. And on and on. Thou art to obey. You're to obey your mother and father. Don't disobey. These things, the moral law is written there. There's a, there's a code of morality, right and wrong, written in the heart of every man. And again, is called the conscience. The God-given conscience will always point you to a higher standard. It'll always point you to a higher standard of conduct and let you know when that standard has been violated or being ignored. It'll always point to that, either being violated or ignored. And we won't have time to talk about it tonight, but there is a, such a matter as a seared conscience. That we say no, and we say no, and we've so, gone so far in sin, we've rejected that warning. It's like um, on the side of my house, there's one of those little 
little lights that if something were happened to a particular system in our house, there's a light that goes off. And I've seen it in some of my neighbor's uh, property. Uh, and it'll go off. It's like a, a little red bubble machine on top of a, uh, used to have it on the police cars. It's on top of the house, it's on the side of the house. And it, eh, 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 and this thing's going on. Well, you can actually go outside and flip a switch and turn the eh, 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 off. When our conscience becomes seared, we no longer hear that sound. We no longer are able to take note, and, and that can certainly happen. But as Christians, we certainly want to make sure that's not something that takes place in our life. If and when we violate that higher standard, and when it's ignored, when it's violated, and our actions become contrary to the conscience, then the conscience then goes into another mode. What does it do? It continues to alert us. The conscience now lets us know that we're guilty. That we're guilty. A guilty conscience. The conscience that remains guilty is a conscience that will eventually destroy the life, if not render it completely useless. A guilty conscience. There have been men, women, boys and girls have lived their lives with a guilty conscience. It will eventually destroy them. So many people, so many people live day in and day out with a guilty conscience. And let me just say that's a miserable way to live a life. An absolutely miserable way to live a life. Notice the working of a guilty conscience in a couple lives within the Bible. Go with me to the book of John chapter number 8. The working of a guilty conscience, John chapter number 8, verses 3 through 9. The working of a guilty conscience within the heart. John 8, verses 3 through 9. We know this story very well. Jesus is here, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought in him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act, and Moses Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might find, or excuse me, might have uh, to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her, first cast a stone at her, and he again, he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, notice this phrase, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even at the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Here you see a guilty conscience at work. Boy, they brought this lady and said, we'll settle this we're not just we're not after the lady we're after Jesus we'll fix this thing we've got him here and they all went out guilty guilty that guilty conscience go with me to the book of Matthew chapter number 27 Matthew 27 verses 3 through 5 Matthew 27 the guilty conscience guilty condemnation Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. 
Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now, this is not godly repentance. He wished he had not done it. He repented himself, said, I wish I hadn't have done this. But he could have been saved. I believe Judas could have been saved if he had gone to Jesus Christ and trusted him, repented of his sin. But he did not go to Christ. He repented of himself. And look what his repentance did and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He was sorry that he was being condemned. Not necessarily so sorry for his sin. Saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. What do you see there? It's a picture of a guilty conscience. He can't live anymore with it. It's, It's driving his life. So it literally took his life. I believe that the human conscience is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses in our lives to convict us of sin. The tool that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of sin. Matthew 26, look at verses 53, 4, excuse me, 73, 4 and 5. And while he came... Unto him, excuse me, and after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here you see a conscience that had convicted. The Holy Spirit using the conscience that convicted Peter in this particular instance. John 16 and 8. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. The conscience is a tool used to reprove the world of sin. It's a tool that's used by the Holy Spirit. The conscience, let me add, is not to be ignored. The conscience is not to be ignored. It's a tool that God uses to keep us in the right, to point us away from the wrong. Now go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians again. Go back. To our text, 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Much of 2 Corinthians was written as a response to false teachers who had crept in to the church there at Corinth. Paul writes much of 2 Corinthians dealing with accusations that were made against him. These false teachers, they crept into the church. And they were seeking to undermine the authority of the Apostle Paul. And literally to destroy the work that he had done. And he had set forth and set in place. Uh, Look at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse number 13. Chapter 11, verse number 13. And as we go through this book of 2 Corinthians, we'll see how these false teachers over and over again are working to undermine the Apostle Paul and the authority of the power and the word of God. 
verse number 13 of 2 Corinthians 11. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They've crept in. They're seeking to destroy. Now, Paul feared that these false prophets and teachers were influencing the church. They were getting a hearing, gaining a hearing, and I believe if you give false doctrine a hearing, sooner or later, it'll get a stronghold. Sooner or later, it'll get a foothold. That's why it's so important within a local church that you don't let that thing take root, that you don't let it take off. Because false doctrine, once it begins to get a hearing, it'll take hold and it'll run like wildfire in a local church. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. And Paul, he got to thinking, maybe, and rightfully so, that is beginning to take place. These false teachers have come in. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4, and you'll see it. Would to God you could bear with me a little while in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, he says, but I fear lest by means, by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through the subtlety of your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That as Satan beguiled Adam and beguiled Eve, Satan now is going to use the same tactics to beguile you. For if he that cometh preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, we, ye might well bear with him. Paul was beginning to Give the thought, and it would be true, that if you listen, if you start accepting false doctrine, then this false doctrine is going to take place. So this is what Paul is writing much of 2 Corinthians to deal with within this local church. Much of 1 Corinthians was dealing with the immorality and so many of those things that was going on with the church to bring them out of the world. Now false doctrine is coming to the church. 2 Corinthians is written predominantly to help them understand and see the false doctrine and to guard against it. These false teachers had set out to discredit and tear down Paul and his ministry at Corinth. There were three main areas of accusations against Paul. And he's dealing with them in these passages and we'll see it throughout the rest of the book. Paul begins answering these accusations against him. Now the first accusation is this. Paul's, these false teachers, they charge Paul in his conduct and his character. They make accusations against him in his conduct and his character. First Corinthians chapter, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse number 12. You'll see this. For the rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, We have had our conversation, our way of living in the world and more abundantly to you word. Here these accusations begin with their taking a shot at his character and his conduct. They're seeking again to undermine his his authority. He says, 
I rejoice in the testimony of my conscience. They might make their accusations, but his life and his conscience exonerate him. They can make the accusations if they choose, but his life, his conscience, even within him, he knows these things exonerate him. No matter what is said against him, his life is right with God. He says, my conduct and my character have been only in holiness and sincerity. My conduct and my character have been in holiness and sincerity. The idea of holiness there is moral purity as well as motive purity. Morally pure, motive pure. Sincerity. The word for sincerity is made up of two words. It's a compound word in the Greek. And the first word is sunlight. And the second compound part of that word is to judge. So he's literally saying you can hold my life up in to the light of the truth. And it will show to be pure. You ever held something up in the light to see it a little better? Paul says look at my life. Hold it up in the truth, the truth of God's word, and it'll come out right every single time. My life has been lived in holiness and sincerity, but don't miss the word godly. Godly out of verse number 12. He was holy and sincere because God was the center of his life. That's what makes the difference. God was the center of his life. Living life after a godly sort. Paul was not living after the wisdom of the flesh. He mentions that out of verse number 12. He wasn't living after the wisdom of the flesh. But he was living by the grace of God that was in his life. His conversation, his lifestyle was right for all to witness. Nothing in Paul's life gave any hint that these accusations were true. Go with me to chapter number 6, verses 3 through 7. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 7. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry, notice this, be not blamed... But in all approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. Showing ourselves to be ministers of God in the midst of these difficulties. In stripes and imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. By pureness, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. Nothing fake in the life of the Apostle Paul. His life does not, it shows anything but the accusations that have been brought against him. So there's the accusation against his conduct and his character that he begins to deal with. Number two, there's the accusations against his motives for ministry. His motives for ministry. Back to chapter 1, verses 13. For we write... None other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end. 
as also ye have acknowledged in us, excuse me, knowledge us in part. There's the accusation of motives of the ministry. It was being said that Paul was manipulating the people for his own selfish gain. Manipulating the people for his own selfish gain. Paul says, what I've written here, I have done so with no hidden agenda or selfish motive. But a motive only that you would come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the only motive here. That you'll come to know Christ. There's no other motive. You know the sea and, the, and read the things that I've said. You ever said something and, and, or written something and it came back later that somebody else interpreted it completely different than the way you intended it? You know, sometimes it doesn't matter what words you use. Some people have an intention and have a desire to interpret what you said in a completely different manner. And they're convinced you said something you didn't say. This is what's taking place. They are trying to convince the people, the church at Corinth here, these false teachers, that Paul's got some hidden agenda in his ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 5. Let me read you the verse. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. And ourselves, your servants, for Christ's sake. There's no hidden agenda here. Paul had defrauded no one, he had not used anyone for his own self-gain. Look at chapter 7 and verse number 2. Chapter 7 and verse number 2. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. Look at chapter 11. Again, verse number 9. Chapter 11 and verse number 9. And when I was present with you and wanted. I had a need, he says. I was with you and I had a need. But look what he says. I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me... The brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you. And so will I keep myself. The accusation is he's in it for his, the, the pat his own pocket. He's in it for his own uh, good pleasure and see what he can gain. He's in to pilfer the people. Paul says no way, no how. There's the accusation Against his character. There's accusation against his motives. But then there's another accusation. It's accusation of doctrinal error. Doctrinal error. Go with me to back to the first chapter. Verse number 14. The second half. That we are your rejoicing. Even as ye also ours. In the day of the Lord Jesus. And Paul begins with this one. This is the most serious of. And. and I dare say in Paul's life, the most hurtful of the charges that these false teachers brought against him. Uh, Paul, in the remainder of this book, we'll see over and over again how Paul is answering. and He's dealing with this accusation of doctrinal error that they have now brought against him. And Paul now is being called a false teacher. 
Paul deals with his accusation again throughout all the letter. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 17. Chapter 2 and verse number 17. For we are not many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 4. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor look, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 20. Wrong verse, don't have it there. Let me see if I can find the verse I'm looking for. It's not 20 because it don't go that far. I'll find it and have to come back to you. Make up one, he says. I'll not do it. I'm not going to handle it deceitfully, corruptly, brother. I'm going to find that verse. I will. Listen, Paul was no religious con man. Paul was no religious con man. And let me say, the world is full of religious con men. The world's full of them. Paul had no guilty conscience about his life. Or his ministry. He did not fear standing before God to give an account for any kind of false teaching in his life. He mentions out of that verse 14, the latter part, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had no fear that one day he would have to stand before God and give an account of how he had presented the truth to the people. Well, I wouldn't want to stand before God one day and have to give an account for teaching lies. For teaching anything that was contrary to this book. For teaching false religion. For telling somebody that you can get to heaven by joining a church. By giving to the church. By being baptized. Or anything like this. I wouldn't want to stand before God and have to give an account. Paul didn't want to stand before God and have to give an account for false teaching. And he wasn't about to. He said, the things you've heard are the things that have been given to me by God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. Chapter 5 and verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Paul had no intention to stand before God and give an account for anything bad. His conscience was clear uh, in this particular matter. He was no religious huckster here. He was the real thing. He had no fear of that. Paul lived his life right before God and right before men. Acts 24 and 16, Paul had said, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. I exercise. I'm working at it. This is a point that I'm trying to work toward. And I I remember it day in and day out. To have a a conscience that's void of offense. First before God and then before man. And if 
there's a, an offense before man, it's going to be hard to be right before God. Question, could we say this about ourselves? This matter of this void of offense before God and before man, could we say this about ourselves? Well, it's a tall order, is it not? A tall order. No offense between any brother or sister in Christ. Void of offense, anything between me and the Lord with regards to sin. Let me make, very quickly, let me make four statements with regarding to this in closing. Four statements in closing about our conscience. Number one, it's God's tool used by the Holy Spirit that calls us to a higher standard of right over wrong. God's tool used by the Holy Spirit that calls us to a higher standard of right over wrong. Statement number two. The conscience condemns when ignored and offended. It condemns when ignored and offended. And when that takes place, guilt results. Guilt sets in. I mentioned earlier, it can be seared. It can be hardened. It can be defiled. We don't have time to deal with that tonight, but when we ignore the conscience, when we do away with the conscience, then the guilt begins to set in. Number three, the conscience must be cleansed. The conscience must be cleansed. When Jesus was there and that woman who had been caught in the act of adultery was brought in, the conscience, those guilty conscience all began to go away. Jesus said, where are your accusers? They'd all gone away. Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I. There's a cleansing of the conscience. There must be that cleansed conscience. The guilt can be removed. We don't have to live with a guilty conscience. Amen? The guilt can be removed. Hebrews 10 and 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for a clean conscience, amen? I've heard people say, you know, when I got saved, the the, the grass was greener. The sky was bluer. You know what that's all about? The clean conscience. It's nothing in the way. It's like getting a new set of spectacles. You can see good for the first time in a long time. God cleanses the conscience. He removes the guilt. But you know, even when God cleanses it, sometimes cleanses our conscience, there's a matter sometimes with a brother or sister that we need to go make right ourselves. Doesn't matter, doesn't mean that we ignore it because we get it under the blood and praise God for that, but God now says you need to go make it right with him or with her. Must be cleansed. Number four, the conscience must be guarded. The conscience must be guarded. Proverbs 4 and 23, keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep the heart, keep the conscience right. Don't violate 
the conscience. The conscience will always point us to the higher standard. And the more we get into this Bible and allow this Bible to get into us, the conscience is going to make us aware of more and more and more. And when the Bible says, this is the way, walk ye therein. Or don't go there. Don't partake there. Put off this. Put on this. And we violate the truth that we know. The conscience will condemn us. But keep it with all diligence. Keep it with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Question tonight in closing. Is our conscience clear with God and with man? Or is there something that needs attention? Boy, if it is, let's go ahead and get it taken care of. Is our conscience clear with God and man? Void of offense. I trust it is. You know, it's the comfort of a clean conscience. There is comfort in that. The comfort of a clean conscience. Do we have that tonight? I certainly hope so. Let's bow our hearts in prayer.